You're listening to Work Tape, Episode 6. Welcome to this edition of the Work Tape Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mitchell Palmer. Right next to me, as always, Isaac Grover. Isaac Grover, yes. And starting off this podcast with some music-related news in terms of a quick check on the Billboard Hot 100. BTS back at the top of the charts with their song, Butter. What a surprise. Um, Not really, no, (laughs) especially with BTS's presence in the Billboard Hot 100 as of recent, especially over the last year and a half, really through kind of the pandemic, actually. They've really kind of taken an opportunity to come out ahead on the charts. I think in big part because, I'm gonna be very honest, a lot of the major players weren't releasing music and we're a bit hesitant to because of the circumstances that the pandemic created, especially within touring and not being able to tour the albums. However, I think you may see a little bit of this competition or a little bit of a catch up from the major artists who are now going to release albums because it's actually feasible for them to promote it and generate it. Ed Sheeran just came out with a, a new single, Bad Habits. You know what? I thought it was really mediocre. Yes, I agree. I thought it was. You took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. And he still set some records, I guess, with the TikTok concert. Oh, yeah. It was, what was it, the most viewed or the, it made the most or something like that. But some sort of like TikTok concert world record was set. Mm. So he set the bar with that. I mean, yeah. say what you will about him. He really isn't my cup of tea. But no. I recognize what he's done. I acknowledge him. <laughs> but it was still a weak single. Well, I think the thing with the Ed Sheeran record that just didn't really appeal to me was I feel like he's kind of trying to be something that he's not. I knew it, dude, because I was feeling that vibe. I was like, I feel like the dude's just trying to be something he's not. Yeah. Because he's actually really good at what he does. Right. His brand of music. Yeah, but trying to kind of be like The Weeknd and all these guys. That's what I thought, too. You know what I mean? That's what exactly what I thought. It sounded like he listened to it. It, 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 it sounded like he listened to After Hours by the weekend. It sounded like he listened to Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa. And he's like, yeah, he's like, he's yeah. like, let me go ahead and try that. I need to get in on that. And no. I think he was recently on Hot Ones and he said he had a good point that the single, at least from what he was saying in his creative process, that it's something that's like a bit unexpected or maybe out of the comfort zone, which I can't appreciate in the sense that he wanted to do something different. He didn't want to. I was going to say he could have gone far left without acting like everyone else. Right. And that's the thing, like even down to the music video in the sense that it's very pastel, very 80s. He has this whole like vampire concept Mm -hmm. going. How many times have we seen this? We've seen this since Thriller. And I and I feel like, to be honest, and I know you love The Weeknd, that bothered me about The Weeknd is sometimes just. Oh, the the whole character thing. Bruno Mars. Yeah. Like the way everyone like just sucks the life out of Michael Jackson's artistry. And it's like, can we just let the man be himself? Yeah. But I mean, I have to respect The Weeknd in the sense that he really ran with the concept a lot more. Bruno seems more like a chameleon. Like he always changes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, impersonating someone different. Definitely. I would say that Bruno's going more into that 70s realm, especially with Mm -hmm. his forthcoming Mm -hmm. project of of Anderson (laughs) Pack, which I'm still waiting on that, by the way. It's still good. I'm not saying it's bad. No, absolutely. In terms of vocals and, (laughs) and songwriting talents, the man is one of the best that we have to offer. Truly. I'm that one guy that hates throwbacks or I'm very picky with them. So I know that I'm totally the one dude on this planet that feels this way. I know everyone does not agree with me. Right. But I mean, you know, it's the idea of that feel good music. 
And I appreciate that Sheeran did try to do that and tried to do something a little bit different in that respect. Right. At least he went away from what he was doing. Right. But I don't think it quite worked. I think him as a singer, for him in that particular registration, it just doesn't convince me that he's doing that really all that well. And I know that he got lumped into the balladeer or the soundtrack of your Uber ride or the type of music that you hear in a coffee house somewhere. Does it bother you because it was like a bit of a missed opportunity? Perhaps. I just think that if he was going to go in more of that synth pop dance direction, that there just could have been a little more effort put in. Mm -hmm. And I think that he needed to have more of what he was really known for, which was in a way his timbre was something that he was indeed known for. But I mean, in comparison to even what his last album offered, which was, well, he had the collaborations EP, which I thought was kind of okay. Mm -hmm. I felt like he was trying to keep up with the shift in direction and to varying success, especially with some of those things with like Chancellor Rapper. And he had a track with Cardi B, which I don't think that those two on a track really makes a lot of sense. But Still, get your bag, Ed, I guess. But I mean, I think about Divide and Shape of You, which was arguably one of the biggest hits of his career, having more of that club-ready sound. And I felt like it was done more genuinely, even though it was a complete rip of No Scrubs in the melody and the tempo. But if he was going to rip something off, was it at least something that was relevant at the time? Well, I mean, the TLC song has had... Oh, gotcha, gotcha, it's the gotcha. T, it's, the TLC, it's the TLC No Scrubs. Gotcha, gotcha. Sounds and, like a... And that's a, and that's a song that has maintained a fair amount of relevance in popular culture. I think that's fine. A 15, 20-year gap is totally different than always going back to like 40 years ago. I feel like that's kind of different. And I'm glad that the songwriters from TLC got a nice check on that right. one. But that international influence, I mean, he's done some things internationally on that record too. He had a lot of Irish-sounding songs on that, which makes sense from him being British Irish descent. So I always hate on when artists, especially people like Ed Sheeran, you know, they've had a reasonable amount of success. Mm -hmm. To me, it is artistic laziness when people just, oh, I'm just going to throw back 30, 40 years. I don't necessarily like it, but I also feel like Ed Sheeran is just those artists that they definitely had their peak. Yeah. And I almost feel like, you know what? He's allowed to do that. Yeah. I'm not going to partake in it. Yeah. You're not even going to endorse it per se, but no, you're just like. No, because at least he did something that felt like himself mm -hmm. and it got a considerable amount of attention. I feel like that's way different than an artist who is building their entire career off of just like, OK, I'm going to sound like James Brown now. OK, now I'm going to sound like this guy now. Right. <clears> the like, black keys. <clears throat> yeah, but that's what I'm saying. I don't feel like it's very genuine. Right. And I mean, I think with Sheeran, the first two out feel the same way about white stripes. Well, Jack White in general, to be honest, Jack, <laughs> Jack White in general has always struck me as like garage revival personified. That's what they are. Yeah, is, 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 it's, it's the garage movement personified. He no is question. really good. I just was like, uh, this feels a little. I mean, with the White Stripes, it's an interesting thing because some of their tracks I felt were actually experimental for the time. Like Icky Thump is a song that I feel like is very specific to them. It has that stomp clap aspect of a lot of those songs. I think that but they the flute, are a but very the flute, necessary band and culture because without the White Stripes, I yeah. acknowledge that we wouldn't have gotten royal blood. We wouldn't have gotten a lot of the really cool bands that we have today. Absolutely. You know, nothing but thieves and stuff yeah. like that. No, I think they are pioneers of the modern day duo. Oh, yeah, of course. No doubt that they did that. And they had a tremendous amount of success in doing that. But 
I think that there was a little bit of a burnout. Like the White Stripes projects were good. And then when Jack went solo, I felt like it burnt out a little bit. Yeah. And that's going to probably anger some people who might listen to this who are really deep into music because they'll be like, what are you talking about? Blunderbuss was one of the best rock albums. Dude, of- we're going to be stepping on everyone's toes. Is, is, we well, step on our own toes, so yeah. we're totally going to step on yours and we are unapologetic about it. So <laughs> everyone's going to get their feelings hurt here. Everyone. Right. Everyone. So. Yeah, so you have to, you just have to be ready for that. You have to have <laughs> man and woman up and just take it. We're all going to take this together. Right. Some thick skin. I mean, there's people who are staying behind Sharon's brand of music too. So I just think that those first two records he put out, what was it? Uh, plus and Multiply or one of those, I think it was Plus and Multiply. Yeah, he hasn't called it Minus yet because oh, that's yeah. obviously <laughs> problematic. But Plus and Multiply was really cool because I felt like it had a really great blend of folk rock with R&B influence in the song lyrics because he did come up around the UK rap grime R&B scene, you know, and the UK has always been a great platform for that specific style of music, always kind of has been, at least from what I've observed, especially when we were bringing over soul and R&B into Britain and how those artists were actually better received and had more liberties across the pond than they had in the country that they were from Mm -hmm. at the time. And Multiply was that healthy experimentation, but also keeping his brand, the slow acoustic love ballads that people are going to be playing for decades. You're going to hear at so many weddings. You're going to hear at so many anniversaries. I mean, he's gotten in that category where the actual respect for him may be very subjective depending on who you ask. But I think that he's kind of cemented himself in that classification of music that's going to be played on a regular basis that you really can't escape at this point. Very much like a Neil Diamond in that sense, where, I mean, I know some people are going to be like, you just compared Neil Diamond to Ed Sheeran. What do you mean? But you know what I'm saying, though? I do know that, what you're that longevity of those types of songs where, like, you're going to hear Thinking Out Loud or Perfect at, like, so many weddings and so many special events. You're going to hear that. It's called an iconic status or a classic status, something where it's, a, it, it is um, a standard, as you will. It's timeless. Yeah, a standard. Where it transcends the time that it is from. Right. As opposed to a lot of music where you've, it may have been a flash in the pan and it may have had a lot of success early on, but then <laughs> dated. Like nobody's business. You mean like Gangnam Style? Right. That's the segue. You already knew I was going there. As soon as I said, as soon as I said, flash in the pan, you're like, he's gonna talk about Psy. Yeah, I know. I was like, I was like, okay, I, I think I know where this is going. And and he talked about BTS, so it's going full circle. Yes, Psy. I'm gonna say it now. Psy crawled so the K-pop artists and groups could run. The fact that he established a big basis, having one of the biggest hits of what 2012, 2011, in 2012, the, 2012 2011 in the U.S. Because I think it started gaining traction at the end of 2011 going into 2012 if i recall correctly but regardless having not only the dance movement which of course we go into those okay you want to talk about the dance movement dance the the dance oh my gosh danthems danthems i remember were really taking flight back in like 07 08 well yes but i'm not saying they didn't before then there was that time before but Oh, they really out. But I remember they were like, they were totally like. Yeah. Every middle school dance had electric slide. Remember that? Everything was like a 
Yeah, and Coldplay I got on it with Viva La Vida. Like it had so much influence on everything. Sure, and I mean, Psy arguably made probably one of the most prolific at that time. Yes, it was like a pinnacle for that movement. Yeah, which I so desperately with, despise. With the, with the dance moves, it was at every stadium event. It was at every party. The clubs were playing. And it the Magic Dragons debuted, and yeah, everything. At the, crazy the, the novel, the novelty of the dance alone mm -hmm. had a big longevity. Of course, it being the first music video, at least as far as I'm concerned, to amass a billion views on YouTube. That's a title that you cannot take away from the man. So, like I said, I think he laid down that foundation. So these groups like BTS and countless others that are going to follow after really could gain a lot of that traction. But I mean, that kind of goes once again to the idea of uh, one hit wonder or are you going to make it last because i think sai he had that bright moment where he shined very brightly but really couldn't continue it because i remember he put out a follow-up i think it was gentleman and he tried to capitalize hmm. off of that momentum it was basically the same production style right down to the same type of chorus which kind of wasn't really a chorus it was more of just like an instrumental bit a refrain um, of yeah some sort. yeah yeah and it, it just didn't go where it needed to. And of course, then you have One Hit Wonders crossing over with the Danthems as we've coined on this show now, where there's a dance associated with it, such as Juju on that beat, moving like Bernie. I say moving like Bernie, and you, you're having flashbacks of, of this, of seeing everybody when that song comes on, of doing this. How can anyone take this so seriously? I don't know. If it's like part of the community to just take this lightly like a joke, but I well, <laughs> I know be, what to be, say. Because this was a period of time where it dominated our cultural zeitgeist. And yes, it did have its foundation in irony. Was it like an unironic or ironic kind of nature to this? Oh stuff? yeah. I mean people I, I mean people knew that it was a people knew that it was a novelty song. Like people knew that it was for giggles in the most part. And I don't think anybody perceived it as high art per se. But the fact that so many people unanimously got into it and perpetuated it was the thing where I was, okay, it's an expectation now almost that you're going to have one or two of these songs that are going to chart every single year where it's one phrase or a few phrases repeated over and over, and that makes up a bulk of the song. You know, you had Electric Slide in all of your dances up through like basically high school. Once you got to like high school, they they cut it because they're like, we, we can't do this anymore because <laughs> otherwise people are going to want to bang their head against the wall. But then it evolved into the Cupid Shuffle. The Cupid Shuffle was what got into the high I school. I think that mainstream pop is much better now than it used to be. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's much better now. But I do see remnants of that era, especially with the coordinated dances and the movements persisting now into the TikTok Instagram arena where so much of that chart success is based around if there's a challenge or mm. some type of movement to it. Of course, Drake kind of was ahead of the curve with the In My Feelings challenge, where every time you hear that song, you just think to yourself or it reminds you of scrolling through Instagram, seeing all those people ghostwriting the whip and doing Kiki, do you love me? I, I can't, I can't do it no more. And, and, and I choose not to. I haven't listened to that song since it's, since that happened. It, it, it took the appeal away from me. <laughs> and I guess that's not too surprising considering it's coming from Drake, which a lot of times he has a tendency to do that. But then he actually did get on the TikTok thing with the Tussie slide, left foot up, 
right foot slide. I mean, that was very much made intentionally to be a TikTok phenomenon. And it worked because people were doing it. He got his bag. But I'm saying that those remnants and those elements of that period, although it's not probably as corny as maybe it was back in the day, it's still persisting now. And mm -hmm. it's still causing a lot of influence as to what the hits are in terms of things. And I don't know, are you aware of the, the boycott of dances? There's a thing on TikTok where there was a dances, oh, dances being generated yeah, yeah, by, by yeah. black choreographers. Yeah coming up with dances and, and making yeah. big hits of songs and they're boycotting. So now it's actually affecting the way that the reach of some of these songs are having because they're not getting compensated. They're not getting credited. So we're, we're talking, we're, we, uh, we're returning back to the cultural appropriation topic. Now, is this the one that we had to destroy because the computer stopped recording? No, that was a different thing. That was more of like- Wait, no, no, is this, but did we talk about cultural appropriation within the last something minutes? And this one was it the one that we just like, it was a dud. I forgot. I'm, I think it was probably the one that was a dud, but, okay, we'll, so, but we'll make it happen. So here. we didn't talk about it now. Okay. No, cool. this is this is fresh material. Got it. So none of these people know exactly what we're talking about. That's yet. a fresh material because okay. the one we were discussing before was more of how the musical elements are being incorporated. This okay. is more of now the dance aspect of things because this is more of But essentially still within the cultural appropriation space. Right. Because the idea is is the reason why they are boycotting and rightfully so is that you're having these creators and these influencers with these dances and making movements, but not crediting the original source of where it came from. So the same idea of taking what's going on in that culture of things and expanding upon it, but not redirecting people back right. to the choreography. So I think it's definitely warranted. I think it's fair. I think that it is a very expected response. I think that it's appropriate in some ways. Mm -hmm. I think the frustration of not getting credited is valid. Yeah, of course. I just think sometimes the way in which people do things is highly victimized and just very overdramatic. Sure. I think we're in sensitive times for sure. Yeah, we are. The overall sensitivity about how you do things is huge in terms of people just not singing about a lot of things or, you know, people have always said many a comment section, you know, what, what happened to the music with substance? Well, I'll tell you what happened with the music with substance. So without being too political, because I know it can get into that very easily, but I'm not going to do that. What I will say <laughs> is as an artist. Bipartisan. No, no. Uh, by party needs to go. Bottom line, <laughs> we need to stop as people being so, we need to stop walking in eggshells with people. Let's just be who we are. Yeah. I know who someone is might not necessarily fit in what you want, but I feel like as an artist, if you're going to do music, not everyone's going to agree with you. Maybe there's something that you found. You found a dance that you really like and you want to put it in your video. Like if you want to do that, fine. I'm always talking about the artists that I ripped off. Yeah. I talk about it without any apology because... I would be nothing without them. Mm -hmm. And I acknowledge that. Right. But I know some people aren't big on that. They're like, oh, no, this is my original thought. I'm like, no, you picked it up from someone else, but you are doing it in your own way. And that's fine. But just admit it. Right. And I think people are way too sensitive about that stuff. They think that everyone has to always credit the way that they want them to credit. And I just feel like that's really unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So the boycott, it's understandable. Mm -hmm. I just feel like we need to stop canceling people for no reason and honestly if someone does something in music that you hate okay then just ignore it right you can you can vote with your wallet still in that respect absolutely yeah you don't have to give it attention yeah now if someone is like putting out music about murder in a song and saying that it's okay i mean 
I would definitely be outspoken about it. But I know some people who also say, well, Isaac, just follow your advice and just ignore it. Right. So. I mean, some of those early Eminem records were like, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get into like, you know, like Kim, even though it's like hypothetical, it's still done with such conviction that you kind of wonder, like, <laughs> did you actually really think about doing this? I'll simplify it again. I'm the odd man out here. Yeah. Most people do not hear things the way I do. And I recognize that. And I just kind of like, all right, cool. Yeah. We will agree to disagree. Yeah. But that's what I do. I just, if an artist does something that I don't support at all, I don't give him any attention. Yeah, it's like pretending it doesn't exist. No. Right. In other words, live and let live. But I think we should definitely be in proper outrages of things. But yeah, I think some of it's just look at me and what was it? Virtue signaling? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. There's a ton of virtue signaling with this stuff. And I'm like, just chill, dude. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is with the way that the social media landscape is, I mean, Actually, the advice that you put forth, while it is very solid, it's kind of an easier said than done situation, at least in terms of social media. I'll hear that. Because you can say, oh, yeah, I'm going to ignore it. But if social media picks it up in the way that they usually do with these kinds of things, you can really try all you want. You're going to be reminded of it in one way or another. You're right. So that you're right. So that's the thing that's really interesting about once again this landscape of things and how a lot of artists will go ahead and start some of them are really good about utilizing that type of thing to their favor and then other ones don't quite do it enough. And I think that's the difference of the people that end up having a massive influence and will shake up a lot of things in industry as opposed to those who have a lot of talent but just don't know how to go down that avenue. Um, because- I think that people could better balance chaos and order. Right. I think we could do a much better job than the way we were doing it. Mm-hmm. But there's just something to be said, too, about lots of talent that you see where you're kind of like, you know, why aren't you signed? Why aren't you on the charts? And it's not because of... Well, that one's easy. Marketing. Yeah, of course. It is the marketing, yeah. And those who are on the in-crowd... Well, yes. It's a big part of it, too. We, yeah, we can talk about industry plants as, as long no, as... No, no, we don't have to do it now. I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, there's a reason why that sure. person's there and this person's right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, there's there's a lot of behind-the-curtain things in the wheels churning of things. So, um, and, and, of course, the idea is, is that they're going to make everything seem very organic and very, you know, oh, they did this pretty much on their own and they really did not. There's a lot of people that they didn't come forth with outright to say that they haven't. Now, there are some folks that just are creative auteurs in that sense, where they just have a wild imagination and a vision for what they want to do and exactly how they want to do it and can cross over into many a medium to make that happen. I'd say Donald Glover is a huge example of that, crossing into film, but also into music, making very memorable videos. Tyler, the creator, is another one of those guys who just came out with an album that's charting incredibly well. If you get lost, call me. What was it? Uh, call me if you get lost. You're wow, cr- I you're pretty close. You you, you you had the same. Yeah, you had you had you had the text, but you just flipped it around. But that's okay. I'm sure you know what. Flip I'm, it, did I? That's that's what you did. And I'm sure you know some people who are trying to be in with music who might not be entirely. They'll be like, oh yeah, that Tyler. If you if you get lost, album, and they're like, no, it's oh, not. Gosh, that's not we're what it's turn that into a meme. That's not what it's called. <laughs> 
It's the idea of like your older family member going to a drugstore or going to a Walmart or something being like, oh yeah, I got you that movie. And then it's one of those things where it was slightly different than what the actual movie is. So say Up versus What's Up or Transmorphers, not Transformers. (laughs) And they come over and they say, oh yeah, I got you the movie. And you look at the case and you're like, what is this? Or when your parents call them Pokemans. Right. You're like, what? You're like, no, you, no, no. Like I said, uh, I, when I fall, I fall with intent. Right. And and that's the only way you can. You got to do it. But I mean, Tyler is one of those guys where he has that kind of creator, Tyler. Wow. That's the thing. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, back to the whole kind of idea of like the one man thing or the one person thing, like that's somebody who I I give a lot of respect to, not only in terms of artistic evolution, because let's be really honest, the stuff that he started with in comparison to what he's doing now is completely different. Some of the stuff that he did earlier, I just could not get into because of the fact that even for somebody who likes experimental music, it was a little too far out. Right. Like in a Radiohead sense? No, not really. I mean, I feel like Radiohead still kept it relatively grounded. Like Mm. I felt like what Tyler was doing was almost throwing things at the wall and seeing what stuck. Okay. So can we just talk about something real quick? What's up? I'm not the only one that felt that, right? What? With Tyler? Yeah. That it kind of felt like he's just doing things and then it got overhyped. Yeah. Which I don't dislike him because actually... There's some tracks. That, oh, right? yeah. I've had friends that really show me the cool things that he's done. Yeah. And honestly, like he has me like I think he's way better artistically than a lot Absolutely. of people today. Absolutely. So this is no hate on him. No, of course not. But I not. did kind of feel that vibe with his earlier stuff. It felt like. Yeah, like Goblin and stuff like that. You know, people like, oh, well, you don't get it, you know, because you don't like black coffee. Well, I like black coffee first off. So <laughs> I don't need to acquire a taste for that. Thank you. <laughs> But this Tyler, the creator stuff was just a little bit different. His earlier stuff. Yeah, of course. Trying to get into that was not like trying to get into. Um, why can't I remember his name? Kendrick. It's not oh, yeah, the, Kendrick. It wasn't the same thing. Kendrick is a little more straightforward. It was like, okay, like I get it, you know? I feel like Kendrick was a little more refined coming out of but the Does it make sense? Because he could be different and unique without yeah, just like, throwing things at the wall. Right. I felt like there was cohesion with like, even with Kendrick's. Even early- with Kanye. Like Kanye and Kendrick mm-hmm. both. Really experimental, and it got really big. Just like Tyler got, you know, really experimental, got really big. But the thing is, I feel like Kanye and Kendrick came, like I said, came out the gate with more of a cohesive sound. And that's the reason why the experimentation worked and why so many people honestly copied it. I think they're more album-oriented. They are. They are. album-minded. Well, yeah, they they are. And Tyler is becoming more album-oriented. But I don't think he started album-oriented. No. I think he was more like, okay, I have a collection of tracks Let's right. see what happens. Right, exactly. And, and, that, and I could be wrong. And there was that period for like, it wasn't even just Goblin. It was a few of the albums after that that were still in that general midst of things. And it's kind of funny because he was part of the Odd Future Collective, which included artists like Earl Sweatshirt, Frank Ocean. Yep, yep. And I felt like Frank Ocean actually came out probably stronger out of the gate in terms of that cohesion that I was well, talking he about. he did, he did. Because that Channel Orange album was really, really good. Also from 2012. Right. And the funny thing is with Frank, he came out with that really tied together, really good flowing album. And then he actually went kind of to where Tyler started, which was more experimental and like. Yeah. Isn't that weird? 
Yeah. So it's weird how they, how it kind of was the antithesis because that's a big part why I got into Frank was because of that cohesion. And the man still has an immense amount of talent. I still respect Frank, although despite the fact that he really hasn't been putting out as much material. He had his orange days, so. Well, yeah. And then it took him, you know, four years to put out his follow-up, which was Blonde, which was even more experimental and pitch shifty and just tampering in the studio you know, creating sounds that we hadn't heard before. And in a lot of ways it worked because tracks like Godspeed with James Blake are are really great. But then some of the stuff I'm just kind of like, I mean, I know that some people appreciate it for its genuineness or authenticity, but um, no, Tyler started with the idea of, yeah, a hodgepodge of different influences and styles. But this three album run that basically he's gone on from Flower Boy to Igor to now this, I feel like some people are calling this a streak in the way that the artists that we admire of yesteryear would come out with these streaks of greatness, basically. And the only question is going to be whether or not he's going to keep going or if that's going to be a classic period and then maintain relevancy but doesn't have anything that tops that because Marvin did something very similar with what's going on, let's get it on. And then I think the one that followed it was like, the I Want You album. I think that was all done back to back or, you know, Stevie too with his classic period of five albums in a row of basically albums that are considered by many a standard classic. So, I mean, that's the thing that's very interesting with Tyler and it'll be interesting also with touring things because I know that he puts a lot into the live shows and has now expanded into his festival. Flogna is the big thing that he's put for the festival. And I've noticed a lot more artists are doing that. They're taking their brand and they're going into things that are outside of music. And that is how they're establishing position, keeping relevancy, but also getting the bag in a lot of sense. Well, I think it's because entrepreneurship is more of a, an overt thing now. Right. Not to say that there are a lot of wannabes out there. There's not a lot of good quality control with the term entrepreneurs. But yes, there are people like Kanye and, you know, and who else? Yeah, Tyler and Travis Scott even is. I mean, I would do the exact same things they're doing. Yeah, Travis Scott is getting more into that. The exact way they're doing it, but I would basically do the same thing that they're doing. Right. And I think the idea is, too, is that with this ever evolving, ever changing thing in terms of technology, I think that becoming a influential, widespread, successful entrepreneur is probably easier than it ever has been, especially for just about anybody who's really willing to put in a lot of time and a lot of commitment into their brand. Because if you're doing anything creatively, like what we're doing now, if we're doing our own music, we are our own brand in that Mm -hmm. sense. And we have to treat, you know, some of it like a business in that way as well. I mean, it is extensions of our soul. It is something that we do, but we want it to be reaching a certain height. You do have to have somewhat of more of a business mentality of like, this is what is going to work. And I know that's a big reason of why we wanted to start this whole journey together is the idea of creating this space for people to not only get these gems and these new perspectives about music and the world in a more fresh way than a lot of the publications that we've unfortunately kind of been stuck with. We are not like the other people no. with the way we say these things. And I think that this is going to be a very difficult podcast to push to a lot of people, but I'm game. 
Right. I mean, it's just because how often do you see a music-oriented podcast that's actually hosted by musicians and artists that are trying to actually do their own Crickets. thing? Crickets. Yeah, hardly any. Exactly. And that's filling in the niche a little bit. And that's, you know. Or if it's run by musicians, they're also in on it. And it's right. not, that's not good. Right. And it's, it, it's that authenticity thing. Right. And filling in the niche. And that's why there's this divide even within popular music of these artists where basically any news related is going to generate a huge buzz within the industry versus those where, okay, an album comes out, we'll listen to it, but it's not overall affecting music. Music. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something that's been changing for a while. And that's where the difference is. And that's why you have like, you know, you, you know, Billy's in that too, in that space now as well, in terms of like anything that she's going to do is mm-hmm. going to be a big thing, which I think, didn't she put out something via Amazon or something like a, another song or something? I heard a te- NDA. You talking about Billy? Yes. Yeah. yeah. NDA. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think about that? You know, it's funny. I still haven't listened to it. I looked it up probably a day or two before it actually came out. So I was trying to listen to it, but I didn't. And I think, I think it actually is released. Yeah, no, I, no, it's, it, no I one, think it is released, and, and now I, I haven't. No, it's to it no, yet. it's out. It has. Okay, yeah. From what I heard, it it has a little more of like, is it Billy going hip hop a little bit? Honestly, it makes perfect sense because even some of the stuff off the debut seemed a little more in that lane of things. And it sounds like from interviews and whatnot that her and Phineas have had a appreciation for that, especially in their production of like bass specifically. Right. Where, yeah, the, the whole idea is like if your speakers are not rattling, then there's not enough bass to the point where it almost distorts. Like, that's the thing that I so think. So can we talk about that, too? How bad some people's ears are? Actually, how bad a lot of you, your guys' ears are that you guys like that <laughs> distorted bass? It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. We can good. talk about this. Let's go. Yeah, it's terrible. It it's like, do you have ears, bro? Because the sonic quality is terrible when you get it. So, like, it's unbalanced. Right. But I think that. I agree with you. I don't think that things should sound flat. No, absolutely not. I don't think it sounds good flat. No, of course not. We don't need something biased so much where it just sounds bad. No, bias is exactly the word or favoring whatever you want to say. But I mean, I think some of that is some people do not invest in good gear to listen (laughs) with. I'm going to be quite honest. I mean, we (laughs) as avid fans of music, as artists who are making our own music, as well as just people who appreciate good sound. Well, we also work in a studio. Yeah. As people who appreciate good sound, we're going to put that money into making sure that we have the proper products to check other music compared to ours. And of course, our music to making sure that our music is passing the general ear test. We will need to cover the best, at least in our opinion, the best engineered albums of all time. Oh, yeah. The albums with the best sonic experience. Absolutely. Because I have a lot of favorite albums that don't sonically sound great. Well, yeah, of course. But I think the thing is, and this is a little bit of a precursor, we can get more into that in a later time because that should be a, a whole episode in itself. But yeah, um, you're talking about the music that you love but doesn't sound as aurally pleasing as some other records. I think in part that's because of resources. You know, a lot of music- That's why a lot of those 60s albums sound way different now. Yeah, but I mean, even if you want to tie this back and go full circle into culturally too, there was a period of time where more diverse artists did not exactly have the same budget as their white counterparts. Let's be honest. Who's who's that? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. Okay, let me be honest. Yeah, yeah. Compare a Trojan Records release 
to a Frank Sinatra album or a Trojan Records release, even to a Beatles album. That's what I'm talking about. And you know what? I, I can't really beat around the bush and trying to be PC about this. So I'm just going to say it. The white people and their white albums, not just the Beatles white album, which is also. Oh, my gosh, that was perfect. Which is also one of their <laughs> things, which also sounds great, by the way. Yep. The white album is is arguably one of their best without any question. That's universally. Well, now we need to talk about ACDC's black album. <laughs> Back in black, yes. <laughs> Which also sounds great. For an 80s rock album, that sounds very good. But the white artists just outright had more of a budget, whether they be on Capitol, whether they be on Columbia, Atlantic, whomever, wherever they were, there was more money put into it because they're like, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about that music crossing over. There's kind of almost a birthright on the charts a little bit. And it's not going to have to cross over like as unfortunate as it is that a lot of black artists in order to get that success, they had to not only get on their chart at that time that they designated, but then also cross over into the mainstream pop charts. I think that's in a big part why even a lot of the soul and R&B records that I love from Stax Records, from Motown, at least in the beginning. They always have a warm character to them. Absolutely. I like that warmth though. I mean- I do too. Maybe it's, it's fantastic. because I'm black. I mean, I love, I love bass. I really do I, like bass. Me as well. I'm a big proprietor and it kind of shocked me like looking into the history of because I think Motown for I think like 50 or 60th anniversary came out with a, a very extensive documentary which talked about the actual recording process how hmm. it was basically kind of like a makeshift was recording. it Standing in the Shadows or a different documentary no it was a different one okay it was a different one that was on Showtime I think but they talked about how oh you want to talk about like cables they called it the snake pit because there were just cables everywhere on the ground. And the cable management, what cable management? Because they had this basically house that was kind of like an almost an abandoned freestanding house. They had to makeshift some big rooms or basically almost the equivalent of like a basement into a full-fledged studio. And I think in big part of why you get that discrepancy of those albums that Yes, they have that warmth. They have that vintage texture where you can hear a lot of that tape hiss. You can hear a lot of that whatnot. It's not as quote unquote clean as some of the counterparts, but that's just because it's more of a budget thing. It was more of just like a budget and resources thing. But then as Motown- but it became part of that character. It became a genre within and of itself. And that's the thing. The thing is at that time, especially once- you know, Motown, Stax Records, Trojan Records, especially as they started getting prevalency in the charts and as it started to really gain a following. But even now, where you just have a lot of technological evolution, people are reverting back to, to the lo-fi sound. Yeah, they're reverting yeah. back to that. Exactly. That's the thing that's very interesting is like at first, you know, it was considered a lesser sound, but then they heard the music and they're like, oh, no, we actually want that now. Yeah, because it has character. Right. As opposed to a lot of the quote unquote more big budget music of the time kind of sounding a, a little bit sterile. The 80s really changed a lot. And it's funny because I used to hate 80s music because of that sterile sound. Honestly, I didn't like that clean sound versus the 70s. You know, it sounded more like it was in a room. It didn't sound like it was hyped up. Yeah. And clean and perfect. Obviously, right now, I retract that because the 80s is some of my favorite music of all time. But really with the underground space. Yeah. 80s underground is the best. Of course. Probably my favorite <laughs> underground movement of all time. It's going to be mentioned at least a few more oh, times. Oh, absolutely. No, no. But, but, but <laughs> bottom line, the recording methods, 
yeah, I did have a problem with the 80s because of that. And so a lot of bands that I like, even though I love them, you know, the the gated reverb, all that stuff, and mm-hmm. everything sounding so pristine and clean, I think it's cool now. I mean, people like to do that. People have been really kissing that sound this past decade. The oh, 2010s, yeah. everyone was like, oh, oh yeah. sound like the 80s again. Right. But I think it was a not very aurally pleasing experience as much as oh, what no. was going on with the 70s and maybe even some of that analog warmth from the 90s as well going away yeah. from oh, that definitely. pristine clean sound something uh-huh. about the 70s and 90s sonically is just great you know what i mean no i agree with you because even the aughts went back to a pristine clean sound yeah which i was like uh uh-huh. uh-uh. i can't I, the 70s and 90s dude like something about those eras well because a lot of major records were still being done on tape which when you actually record the music on real tape not a mm-hmm. not a simulation of real tape although work tape of, Right. Although some of the VSTs in terms of the real to real VSTs actually do a really good job. They've done a pretty good job of giving you that. You might have to define VST for the audience. VST is for those who are uninitiated or just not very familiar in the production space. A VST is a virtual emulation of more oftentimes than not hardware, specific hardware, either uh, compressor units, mixing consoles. Of course, VSTs go into instruments as well. Um, Commonly referred to as plugins. Plugins, that's right. It's a virtual emulation of, like I said, standalone hardware pieces, instruments. Um, of course, we have. And so, what you're talking about with the reel, you're talking about a virtual, a digital representation of the physical tape reels. Co- correct. That they used to have. Correct. Where they, you know, they would cut the tape, they would do all their editing on tape from like the 70s. Correct. And would master it and all right. that. Right. And so, it had a particular character that that's right. digital didn't have. It had that warmth because of the way that it was constructed. Also, why there was a lot of white noise yes that's why you hear a little bit of a, of a hiss but this is very reminiscent of a popular argument in terms of the consumption of music do you like vinyl or do you like it digitally it's just perspective right or was it personal preference that was the word preference yes yeah i feel like it also depends what you're listening to kind of a faulted question in most applications yes and the funny thing is is of course once again like the things of old there's a lot of artists and music where they're going back to the vinyl pressings you can thank hipsters for that one in terms of vinyl i'm gonna think them once and only once everything else you guys have ruined (laughs) pretty much but they are probably one of the biggest reasons why physical sales on vinyl came back in the way that they did because if you look at it so people say oh physical sales are like completely dead no they're not they're just vinyl they're not cds they're vinyl actually which people thought how is that possible cuz you know vinyl dipped you know in the early 2000s mid mid 2000s especially as cds were more prevalent and standard practice in terms of actually playing your records that is before the ipod and all that kind of came out and of course you could just put it in your pocket now but it's a similar argument which is like the vinyl is going to give you that noise and thus that more human characteristic to the music. And so that's a point of contention along with the idea of just recording on tape or recording super digitally. I do agree with you that it really depends on the music. I think if you are listening to music from 70s, 60s, 90s that are recorded with a process that is really meant for vinyl, then that's how you should do it. With more and more albums leaning in a digital direction, I think consuming that digitally should be the way that you do it because I've heard a lot of the quote unquote new presses of digital records or albums that were recorded digitally pressed onto vinyl. 
and mixed results. Let's just say that, generally speaking. What's your take on vinyl and analog elitism? Because it is there. Okay, that's a very good question. This is why I asked it. <laughs> right. Um, personally, that elitism can kind of ruin things for people. I think it can, in the same way that the elitism among hipsters can kind of ruin things for people. And that I am superior to you because I'm listening to it analog, despite the fact that the general public and the general way of the world is digital. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, I'm going against the grain and therefore I'm superior, which is a very basic human nature concept that you can apply to just about anything. Most of these dudes either still live at home with their mom and dad, and so they use the money where they can afford this. Right. right. Because, you know, it's expensive. The world of vinyl, while it's cool, it's very expensive. Two, it's very inconvenient. So if you're moving all the time, yeah, vinyl's not really good for you. Right. And number three, if you're not young and in your 20s, right, you're old and you're out of touch, period. Right. So I feel like... Are you talking about people who like vinyl are the same people who are going to like the GBF? Not not like, but the elitists. I talk about, I'm talking about elitists here because there's a difference between people who just are what they, they just do what they do and then elitists. Right. But I mean, what you're touching on is the idea that they're like. It's the only way to experience yeah, music. And that any other way is. Because I think it's a great way of course. to experience music. It's one that I would like to. I mean, I have, <laughs> I have a ton of vinyl still like sitting in the closet. I, I don't have a record player, which I could get one. Yeah. But I have other priorities right now. Right. You know, which is making your own content and, you know. Yeah, these didn't come for free. So I had, you know, some of us have to make investments in other things. You know, we don't all have like, we don't have like a whole den where we can just dedicate to like a library. And then like, you know what I mean? All this nice stuff, which this is a decent room, but this is for producing and like recording. It's yeah. not for, it's not, I, don't, I can't just like have a separate listening room. No. Yeah. Right. And, and to try not to comfortably, right. Not, and, right. And to try to retrofit it into a, a quote unquote ideal listening space is going to be, you know, quite a bit more that you have to invest in terms of paneling and right. whatnot. And but the problem with elitists, with the audiophile elitists is that it is an expensive hobby. Very much so. And that's kind of the problem. What it does is it says you need to prioritize listening experience. And if you don't prioritize your listening experience, you don't really know music. And it's like, well, that's not true. Right, exactly. And making people who, you know, listen on, you know, AirPods or something feel like, you know, inferior. Less. Yeah. And even people with AirPods. I mean, some people with AirPods are elitist as well. Because Of like, course. You need these to of experience course. music. Yeah. And, and I just, I feel like. Of course, like, yeah. I feel like this needs to be stated because musicians and what was it? The two types of people in the music space, aside from the business people, I would say are the critics and the artists. Yes. Okay. So aside from the business people and the consumers. Right. Besides those people, it's the critics and the artists. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially with like critics, when you don't play music, even though I respect a lot of critics, because, you know, we're, we're technically critics, but we also play, though. We do play. And not every critic plays. Right. And so I feel like when you don't play, you have to tread a little more carefully because a lot of critics, again, you know, which a lot of audiophiles are critics and they don't even play music. Right. Not all of them, but a good majority of them don't play. And they're like, this is the only way to experience music. While there's an artist over there who doesn't have a record player, who doesn't listen to vinyl. Right. 
they still have like their I don't know their their stock earphones that came with their their smartphone. Yeah, and they don't need that to experience music. I mean, heck, these artists are writing really sick and amazing songs, and they did it all without the aid of listening to vinyl or listening to something with you know some yeah. lossless file. Yeah, I, I would say definitely if you have the means and it's not going to right. put you in a tough spot, go ahead and you know get yourself like a nice set of relatively reliable either headphones or in your monitors that you can count on, especially if you are pursuing music as a... No, I'm no, I'm serious. We unironically touch on a lot of classism in this. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> it's all right. That's... It's you know, part of it. It's all right. But, you know, the, the idea is, is, you know, you want something that you can trust that, you know, will get you a pretty good sense of like, you know, how these artists have, you know, put into things. You know, you don't want something where it's not going to live up to where necessarily if you have the means anyway but i yeah, think but I, but i think the truth of the matter is is the beautiful thing about music With music one size does not fit all correct and the accessibility of it people should still be able to access it regardless of whether they're listening to it on stock laptop speakers yeah or if your monitors cost yeah. 10 grand or if your monitors cost you know as much as a car if you can get like a good set of monitors, yeah, and I have some, but you know, there's a time when I didn't have it and I didn't have the money to get some. And these are still not the best of all time, but they're great for what I can do. It's respectable. Shout out to JBL. Yeah, JBL is the best, man. Yeah. So uh, that's a shameless plug for JPL, but <laughs> right? yes. No, uh, but like if you want to experience music and you want to fit in with the in crowd, don't right. just do what you do. Do it the way that you want to experience it. And when you have some extra dollars and you want to invest in vinyl, do your research. Yeah. Because it is a money pit. Yes. It's a money pit. Of course it is. You either have to be living with your parents or making like doctor money, in my opinion, if you really want to get into like that whole experience or inherit it all from your family. Exactly. You can inherit it too. Right. But the thing is, is if you want the most pristine experience, that is. Yeah. You can go entry level with some things yeah, and, and kind level. of and kind of get a taste. But yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying right. to have to have the dedicated space. It's almost like people who have home theaters in their house that they also inherited from a family member of some sort. Right. Or they <laughs> made an obscene amount of money and they just didn't know what to do with it or they were bur it was burning a hole in their wallet. So then they figured, oh, I'll just get a home theater because why not? Right. But the thing that I think it comes down to, long story short, in terms of this whole elitism in regards to consumption of music mm -hmm. is... If music starts becoming about analytics and starts becoming about a very analytical thing in terms of, you know, you have to be, let me say this. If an artist comes out, even if an artist that I like really comes out and says, the only way that you need to experience this is on this system or doing it this way, I'm automatically going to discredit it. Because I'm like, no, 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 no. Your job as the artist is that you need to make that music sound good no matter who is listening to it and no matter how they're listening That's to it. That's actually very true. Because if you want to talk about great engineered albums in terms of a precursor, which of course we'll have a deeper dive into this, but Thriller is a great example of that. From the early 80s, 1982. It actually really does sonically hold up. For 1982... 1982. And it's a pop record. 1982. It's very well engineered. Absolutely. And that's in big part because MJ was, of course, being the perfectionist that MJ is, he's going to, of course, make sure that the music that he's written, performed, that everybody gets the greatest sense of that. And 
whatnot. But also, you have to give a lot of credit to those that were behind the scenes, mainly being Quincy Jones producing the records, but also his engineer, Bruce Sweden, who was his longstanding That engineer. dude's a legend. Yeah, Bruce Sweden, who popularized that microphone you're talking into right okay. here. Right here. Talking into right there. Albeit the SM7B is actually a slightly different version. Yeah, from the one that was from uh, that time. Yeah, because right? it was like the SM7. They redid it in 01 or 02, right? Yeah, I think the one that MJ used had a different capsule design. I think so. But anyway, regardless, that's very secondary unless you're an audio nerd. No, we can get into that. We can do it another time though. Yeah. <laughs> But I think their principle behind doing Thriller, and I remember, I think I remember watching a, a behind the scenes doc about some sort of anniversary of Thriller. I want to say it was maybe 20 years or maybe even 25 that they went in and went into the behind the scenes process. That was their goal from the get go was we need to make this sound good, not only on our studio speakers that, you know, cost as much as a car. But we also need to make sure that if you have at that equivalent would would have been like stock speakers at that equivalent, which would have been like just basically a transistor radio that you would find in any electronic store. We want it to sound good there, too. So that's what they did. They mixed the album and, you know, made sure that it was all going to be good frequency wise to what they wanted. Then when it came to mastering, they tested it on so many different types of speakers to make sure that it sounded consistent across the board, which is exactly what you need to do. Making sure it sounds good on your monitors. It sounds good in your car. It sounds good off a laptop. It sounds good off of a phone because music consumption, we do it pretty much every day in a lot of ways. And a lot of times we'll feel the urge to plug in our, our headphones or whatnot to really get every minute detail. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the end of the day and we don't want to do that and we'll just play it off of our phone. It has to sound good regardless. So when you have tracks that only sound really good through headphones and don't sound good through anything else, or if somebody's coming out and saying, oh, you got you to gotta listen to it this way, I'm like, nah, that's kind of defeating the purpose of, in my opinion, how you're supposed to experience and enjoy music and how that, once again, very much like the very construct of music being a universal language, the experience of music should also be universally applied in mm -hmm. terms of how people can consume the music. And hopefully with more technology, as I'm sure you're aware, Apple's introduced spatial audio mm -hmm. into things with some of their tracks. I haven't tried it yet, but from what I've heard, it could be a breakthrough in terms of how musicians and artists are going to record albums, especially now that they have. It could be hit or say, it could be a fad. I think it could go either way. Absolutely. But if you think about new technology in the audio space, most of the time in the very beginning, it's considered almost kind of a fad or novelty until it starts becoming utilized by enough successful projects that it becomes an industry standard. For example, like Dolby for your films, Dolby Stereo, you know, 5.1 or 7.1. Now they've gotten the Atmos and standard. That whole thing when, you know, that was being established also in the early 80s. So I guess in the early 80s, they just decided, let's have our music and our audio just sound a whole lot better because whatever we're doing is not enough. There was a ton of super cool sound innovation in the 80s, though. Yes. So I'm not hating on it as a mm -hmm. whole. Yeah, tons of synths, tons of different ways because they were all about the future. They were I appreciate it now. I didn't when I was younger, but as I've gotten older, I really appreciate the contrast between the 80s and everything else. But any kind of technological innovation like that, I think, can be perceived as a fad, especially if it is like just one thing or a few things 
things that might be done right. that way. But only time is going to tell in terms of, like I said, if enough successful projects and enough really good albums are able to use spatial audio in a way that makes sense for the listener, then I can see it becoming more of a thing where it's like, hey, if there's a certain release, they're going to actually put that forward. I wouldn't say for independent artists that's going to be a thing because independent artists are working with their resources and just trying to make sure that it generally passes an ear test amongst consumers. But I'm I'm saying spatial audio can be big for major players mm -hmm. in terms of some of their continuing projects. So it's like the NFT space. Yeah. Or similar in that way yeah. that you're kind of... Yeah, in the sense that it's really too early to tell whether or not it's going to be really disruptive in terms of the process, but it has a ton of potential. I mean, NFTs more so in the way that kind of business is conducted in terms of from a financial standpoint, mm -hmm. in the sense that it only takes, you know, basically one super fan who is willing to pay a ridiculous amount of money for one product for people to, you know essentially, as you've stated, cut the middleman and have nobody take a cut. And then the spatial audio could potentially really change the way that we listen to certain albums because they'll be like, okay, you know, very much like certain movies. Like I, I know I compare it to movies, but it's a good comparison here because there's always going to be independent films that are like produced and created for nothing that will have success because there is that human quality. There is that divergence from the mainstream that people are going to appreciate. But then typically it's like really relatable content, right? Like our demographic, generally speaking because sometimes there's a lot of people in our demographic that don't really feel connected to other stories. So there'll always be that independent scene, both in movies and music and art in general, but there's also still going to be, in the same way that you have blockbuster movies, there's always gonna be blockbuster albums where money is no concern and they're gonna put everything they can into it to make it last. So I think that there's always gonna be that. That's just my opinion on that, but Stay tuned for more of that coming next week as we go really deep diving into the best engineered albums. Once again, my name's Mitchell Palmer, Isaac Grover, Work Tape Podcast. Tune in. Yeah. Later. Later.